Hello and welcome to this episode of Cloud Control presented by Spot by NetApp. I am your host, Sean Harris, Developer Relations Lead at Spot. Today we are joined by John Engates, the field CTO at Cloudflare. Cloudflare, if you don't know, is a company based on building better internet by ensuring reliable, secure, and private connections for all their users. His role involves interacting with enterprise customers, working with them on their transformation journeys, and prior to joining Cloudflare, John worked on large-scale SD-WAN deployments for enterprise companies and worked at Rackspace, where he contributed significantly to the advancement of cloud computing. John, thank you so much for joining us and uh, taking some time out of your day to talk with us. Hey, Sean, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to chat with you today. I think one of the questions that people might have is, what is a field CTO? We see the name, we see the title thrown around a lot, but I don't think people under, like we know what a CTO is, but what is a field CTO and how does, and what does that encompass with your role? Sure. So I have been CTO over the years at, at several companies. And what I find is that the CTO role is a little different no matter where you go. Sometimes it's very product focused internally working with the engineers. That's how it was with, with me at Rackspace. I was in the early days, I was uh, CTO at Rackspace and working to build our products and our services. But what happened is as time went by, I got pulled more and more and more to talk to customers. So I got sort of pushed out onto the stage to do a presentation or maybe host a roundtable with a bunch of CISOs or something like that. And so here at Cloudflare, we've just sort of distinguished that role uh, to be something that's externally facing, hence field CTO, field sort of alignment with our field sales, field marketing, field whatever you want to call it, but working pretty closely and aligned with uh, large customers. So that's kind of how I think about it, external. That's interesting. Um, that's I, I think it gives a unique perspective for customers that can't really that really don't have their own CTO and get that kind of leadership that you would have from somebody in the C-suite. Cloudflare is really big on end-user computing security, and you guys have the open the the DNS resolvers that you've started up one dot one dot one dot one. For those who are listening that might not know what that does and why you would want to use it, walk us through, just give us a 5,000-foot overview of why I would want to plug those DNS servers in and the benefits of using um, a third-party DNS service like that. Sure, sure. So uh, I think in the intro, you mentioned Cloudflare and our mission to build a better internet. Well, one of the foundational capabilities underpinning everything on the internet is DNS. It translates uh, domain names into IP addresses. And so everybody needs to check DNS records once in a while when they're browsing the internet. It happens all the time without you really knowing about it. But what you don't oftentimes realize is that when you go to request those uh, IP addresses, sometimes maybe from your upstream ISP, your broadband provider, a lot of those things get logged, they get recorded, they sometimes get used for marketing purposes to target you with ads and with other kinds of things. So, so very similar to the way you're tracked on social media, uh, or people feel like they're tracked on social media, DNS can be a similar um, privacy concern for, for some folks. So number one, first and foremost, we are very uh, clear about the privacy aspects of our 1.1.1.1 DNS. And so we don't log it, we don't track it, and we won't use any of the data to um, you know target you with ads or anything like that. Uh, also, we want to make it super reliable. Reliability matters. If you can't resolve DNS, uh, IP addresses, you know names, whatever, you're not going to be able to get to, to the sites and the services you want. You want it to be fast and reliable. Uh, fast matters because 
Every single time you go to any website, you're probably looking up multiple uh, DNS records. And so you want it to be as quick as possible. And we layer our 1.1.1.1 service on top of Cloudflare's global network. And so the closest um, resolver to you is less than 50 milliseconds away. Typically, we're, we're in, you know, 300 cities around the world in, in major countries and major cities and locations very close to population centers. And so we can make it very fast, reliable, secure, private, all of the above. And I think that's why people want to do it, uh, to use the, you know, the Cloudflare DNS services. That makes, that, that makes a lot of sense. How does that help enable efficient data transfers? Like one of the things, and we'll get into this when we start talking a little bit more on the cloud topics, but data transfer costs are, are something that a lot of people don't understand. It's kind of a hidden science between egress and ingress traffic um, and how the cloud providers bill for it. How does Cloudflare help with that using that managed DNS service and What's their end goal? Like with the with the creation of the CDN, the creation of the open DNS or the um not open DNS, but the the just the the resolvers, how does that make things easier for customers with their data transfer or does it? Sure. Well, look, I think there are some things that um we can tease apart here and explain. I, first of all, Cloudflare I mentioned is a big net network globally. It's it's in lots of different cities around the world. We interconnect with other providers, whether they be backbone providers, network providers, data center operators, cloud providers, we are super well interconnected with all these people. And so we have traffic sometimes that's handed off uh, in a region, maybe like here I am in Texas, you know, up in Dallas, you might hand off traffic between a broadband provider and Cloudflare so that we can make the, the traffic flow efficient. Um, part of the way that we, uh, you know, sort of make use of all of those locations around the world is through a, a very sophisticated routing protocol called BGP Anycast. And that means that the closest location to you, no matter what IP address we give you back in terms of DNS, it's going to resolve to the, the nearest Cloudflare location. So in some regard, the, the CDN aspect improves the performance of websites for end users. And, and so we can hand off traffic to one of our regional locations and then serve the traffic to lots of end users and solve a lot of bandwidth constraints and save money on moving data across the internet. So the CDN helps in that regard. Um, another way that we can do that, you know, if you think not so much from the end user perspective, but from the provider perspective, you know, they have bandwidth costs as well. So if you're hosting a big public website that streams lots of video, there's typically fees associated with sending that data. So if you're sending lots of data outbound from your website, um, somebody wants to charge you for that. It's usually a telco or a internet provider of some sort. So any way we can shave cost off of sort of the, the provider of, of media or content or, or websites, that's very helpful. Um, Another angle on that is storage. So a lot of companies need to store vast amounts of data nowadays. You know, there are storage services that have popped up in the cloud. Um, most clouds have an object storage platform where you can just store what, what I call cheap and deep, right? So lots and lots of data. You need to store lots of it. You need to keep it for a long time, but you need it to be pennies to store it. Well, so even there, there usually are egress fees associated with moving that data out of a cloud provider. 
And so what we've tried to do with our storage platform, we call it R2. R2 has no egress fees associated with it. So based on the fact that Cloudflare's built this global network that's very cost effective, we've been able to bring the cost of moving data down to literally zero. We still charge to store it, but we don't charge to move it. So if you need to get it to your users, you need to get it to another cloud, you need to use it in a machine learning context, there really is no fee associated with moving that data. No, that makes that, that's that's kind of interesting because I think that that's one thing that people get hung up on when they talk about when they think about the cloud and how their data is going to live in the cloud. Um, Rackspace was one of the early innovators in what is now cloud computing. They had one of the first cloud file services. Um, they came on around the same time as S3. They had they were early in the virtual machines and the shared computing model. What was that like to be on the forefront of it from a career perspective? What has it taught you that you've taken now 15 years later as we see how the cloud has become almost ubiquitous in how we use it? How did that those early days at Rackspace affect your career? And what do you lean on now on your day-to-day stuff at Cloudflare? Yeah, sure. So so yeah, Rackspace was an interesting place to be at the time. I joined the company in about 2000. That was right after I started an internet service provider. Uh, one of my big customers was uh, one of the early uh, investors and founders of Rackspace. And he sort of pulled me over to Rackspace to help um, get the company up and running. And it was really cool. Back in those days, this was pre-cloud. So this was before you could go to a website and spin up resources, right? So back then... The alternative, if you needed infrastructure, was co-location. So what that meant is you would go buy your own hardware and you'd drive it down to some sort of data center. You'd rack it yourself. You'd install it and then hope that it stayed running so you didn't have to run down and, and reboot it every once in a while. And back in those days, it didn't always stay running. You literally had to have somebody, they called it remote hands. And sometimes you had somebody walk into your data center rack and reboot it for you or troubleshoot it. So Rackspace's innovation was instead of you having to own and manage and build and buy and all that kind of stuff, we offered something that we called managed hosting. So it was basically, we owned the hardware, we provisioned it for you, we took responsibility for keeping it up and running, we handed the keys to you so that you could be the administrator, but ultimately everything else was sort of our responsibility. So bandwidth was our responsibility, power, uptime, you know, performance, all those things. And we could literally rent servers by the month to customers. So there were companies that would come to us that needed instant, uh, you know, on instant resources. Uh, For example, YouTube was an early customer. I think they got their start really at Rackspace. Lots of companies that were, you know, sort of the, um, uh, you know, the the viral hits of their day, whether you were going to be featured on Oprah or one of these other, you know, maybe Shark Tank or something like that. They came to Rackspace because they could get infrastructure quickly. It would scale quickly. And we would help manage it for them. Um, And so we were sort of an early form of cloud. I mean, we were basically a utility computing capability, an on-demand capability. But it wasn't quite like the instant virtual machine by the hour that we sort of have come to um, recognize as cloud computing today. And so when we saw that, we knew we had to get into that realm as well. So virtualization was a thing, but we were not using it in that context yet. And so we started to tinker around with how we could build our own compute cloud. We had customers asking us for, you know, sort of that uh, low cost storage as well. So object storage, a la, you know, Amazon S3. So we had companies asking for that. So we started to build our own 
prototype proof of concept there. And about that same time, we, um, we started to see that there was a groundswell of uh, interest in open source cloud computing. So some folks over at NASA were talking about cloud computing and needing to have their own cloud uh, in their own data centers. A lot of the big hardware companies on storage, computing, networking, all of them wanted private cloud. They wanted a way to do a cloud uh, in a box and be able to deliver it anywhere. And so we started to really um, decide that we were going to open source a lot of what we were doing. And that's, that's really where the, the OpenStack project is born. So we, we can talk more about that if you're interested. But Oh, we're going uh, to. <laughs> because as a recovering practitioner who came up right at the height of those early days, working in the early days of what is now cloud computing, I remember going to the colo at two in the morning to press a button because one of the production mm -hmm. storage racks went down, right? Like that gives me nightmares. And that's why I kind of moved to the cloud later. But um, how did those early days of the colo start to impact cloud security that we see today and that shared security model that we work with with AWS and the and Azure and Google Cloud and the other cloud providers um security has become a real forefront because everybody's storing their data there but how did those early days impact how we run security now well it certainly taught me a lot of the lessons of what to do and what not to do i mean the, the way that we used to do security um, in the very earliest days uh, of, of rack spaces, we literally would rack firewall appliances, uh, switches, load balancers, uh, network devices of all manner, you know, SSL accelerators, VPN concentrators, uh, you know, all these kind of devices that were um, serving a unique purpose. And they, they would have to be stacked together so that you could sort of chain them together so that the data flowed through the right one. And oftentimes you had to have dual redundant configurations because you had to make sure the reliability was there. That introduced immense complexity because if you didn't have everything in sync and it failed over, everything went you know, haywire. So it, it taught us a lot of lessons about the complexity of uh, security and networking and how um, you know, that really didn't translate very well into a cloud world. You needed things to be more virtualized. You needed to be the, have them more um, on demand and, and be able to uh, sort of virtually wire those together so that there wasn't physical connections all over the place. I mean, you really can't afford to be moving wires in a cloud computing model. It just doesn't, it doesn't scale. It doesn't work. It's not cloud. It's the antithesis of cloud, right? And so you had to start to think about how security was going to transform um, as you moved applications and workloads and infrastructure into a third-party cloud provider. And, you know, some of that took the form of things like access lists. So instead of a, a, a dedicated firewall with your uh, rules associated with it, you would go into the cloud provider dashboard and you would start to configure access lists on a shared firewall of sorts, basically a global uh, network-based firewall that was, you know, sort of inherent in the cloud. And that's really where things continued to head. But what we realized is that even as those services moved to the cloud, not everything was moving to the cloud because a lot of enterprises still had a lot of resources on premises. They still had desktops in their offices. They still had some infrastructure on the data center floor. And so there was this disjoint between how we did security 
inside the enterprise and we put a perimeter around it and we try to keep the bad guys out versus how we did security in a cloud environment where we were really trying to do it more programmatically and more automatically and uh, align it with the way we were building clouds. That's, that's fantastic because I think that I think that we lose sight of what it used to be like when we were having to manage all that infrastructure and the physical aspect of it. And it makes it a lot easier. So you mentioned OpenStack earlier, which was um, that joint collaboration between NASA and Rackspace that was born out of out of necessity. Mm-hmm. And we've seen how um, it started out. It was released in, originally in 2010, and it's now still to this day being supported and it just keeps growing. What was it like to be involved at the forefront of that. And um, if you could go back in time and do something different when it came to OpenStack or just the, how it evolved, how it's evolved, is there anything that you would do different or do you, are you pretty, you think it's pretty cool now and we should, just, and, it, and it's on the right track? Well, it's hard for me to know how things would have played out any differently had we made any you know changes or differences in the way we did things but look i think the the really important factor was getting it open sourced getting it into the community the community can figure out what it wants to do with it the the community certainly uh, has taken it in places and directions where um you know we would have never been able to predict so maybe the the answer to your question what i what what i have done differently is just hand it over to the community and let them run with it right and be be sort of less paternalistic and or less of a parent and more of just like let the let the kids run right because i think the community figures it out ultimately and and um the, the i think it was it was the first and only open source project that i was ever really involved at the creation of so it was really cool to be part of that um i believe in open source i believe in sort of the idea that we need to continue to foster open source software so that people can uh, experiment with it. One of one of my biggest fears about cloud was that it was going to be a black box that no one really understood how it worked. There was no visibility or transparency. You know, when I think back to my earliest days in computers, what I loved about computers is that you could open up the case and look inside and see how the boards fit together and see how everything worked and understand. You know, like a um, you know, you could sort of get a feel for what was what was doing what. And what worried me about cloud is if you look over at somebody's hyperscale cloud, you know, mega scale cloud, whatever it is, it's almost impossible to f- sort of ferret out how it's working under the surface. And if there was a bug or if there was some sort of issue, how would you verify that it was fixed? Or how would you understand how it got fixed, right? And you could only take the word of whoever it is offering the service. And so I thought personally that it was immensely important to have open source cloud at least available to people. And I think that's why it is so ubiquitous today. It's in use all over the world in all kinds of countries. It's in uh, research projects. I think CERN in Switzerland is using it in the, on the back end of the uh, Large Hadron Collider. I think they're they're using it in radio telescopes all over the world to collect data and store it. And that just makes me happy, right? It makes me happy that something that we sort of helped get started is now being used in all kinds of cool contexts like that. And yes, those people could probably use a commercial hyperscale cloud, but you know, if you can do it in, in a way that makes you happy and gives you privacy and, and helps you kind of meet your own goals, then by all means, do it on open source. I mean, it, it works and it, and it scales and it's, 
very competitive against the, even the biggest clouds. Yeah. And I think that that's a, that's a great point that people forget that we, we talk about the cloud and we advocate for the cloud because that's where we work and that's where we spend a lot of our time. But the cloud sometimes doesn't work for everybody. And so this, I think, is a way to give the performance of the cloud without having to go to the cloud. And we'll, we'll talk more about multi-cloud and right. cloud security here in a bit. But one thing I've always wanted to talk about is ever since I Cloudflare popped up on my radar back in 2016, 2017 is when I really started hearing about them a lot more. Um, the lava lamps, the randomness lava lamps that you guys use for, to do your uh, true randomness and entropy for some of your security stuff. How did that come about? And is it still used today? And is it still as reliable as it was when we when they showed us the technical details of it back in 2017? Okay, so the answer to your first question is how did it come about? I don't know because I wasn't even working at Cloudflare in 2017 when that was started. So I'll, I'll just admit, <laughs> I don't know the, her, the history of that. I do know that it still exists. It's at our headquarters in uh, San Francisco. I was out there a couple of weeks ago and I saw the lava lamps and they basically use it, like you said, as, as sort of a random number generator um, to make sure that when we need a random number, it isn't some, something that can be um, you know, sort of figured out or, or, or uh, reverse engineered in some way. So they take a video of that, of that lava lamp uh, array on the wall and the, uh, the patterns that it makes are certainly random. There's no one that can predict, as far as I know, <laughs> no one can predict the, the flows of lava lamps and certainly not the flows of multiple lava lamps in concert like that. And so when you do that and you take a video of it and you translate that into random number generator, it certainly creates that sort of source of entropy that, that, uh, that you're talking about. And that's, that's also, I think, in use in our Austin office and somewhere in Europe, there's a, there's a couple of different art installations that have a similar, they're not all lava lamps, but they're, they're sort of a similar uh, idea behind them. And so it's probably somebody's on somebody's bucket list to go see all these <laughs> these Cloudflare installations in, in uh, around the world. I just want to see one. Yeah, I, come I, to San Francisco. I just I, I want to figure out how to get to see one because it just fascinates me that something so non-connected. Because we talk about the most secure network is the one that you can't see, you can't access, right. has no doors, has no windows, and that we use that kind of theory to to really design internet security. It's just kind of fascinating to me yeah. instead of relying on the computers. Well, random numbers are so important in, in, in the context of encryption and uh, AI. I mean, I'm, I'm playing with all these, you know, generative AIs. And, you know, every time you do something, when you want to create a, an image in, in these generative AIs, you start with a seed. And that seed is sort of your, your random, you know, sort of pattern that's, that's thrown up on the screen and that it iterates from there. And so you could think to yourself, well, if I could reverse engineer how a company generated random numbers, maybe I could understand how they do encryption. And then I could sort of reverse engineer the, the flow of traffic and I could start to see that traffic. And we don't want that, right? I mean, we certainly want our encryption to be bulletproof as much as possible. And again, at the, at the foundation of that is random numbers and we have to have that. And so it's just somebody's clever idea around how to really, really get to not only a, a very cool random number, but also have a something cool to talk about, you know, a really interesting art installation in our headquarters. You mentioned generative AI and that being one of your hot points that you, mm -hmm. that you've been working hobbies with. Hobbies right now. It's, right. it's kind of fun to play with, but it's a, a learning expedition. But we see lots of companies 
trying to adopt generative AI in some form or fashion into their day-to-day operations for, for their customers. How does Cloudflare see generative AI being important in the world of internet security? Um, and as zero trust becomes more ubiquitous, right? Just like the cloud house and the idea of not trusting anybody at any time and constantly trust verifying the access controls. How does AI play into that from a Cloudflare from Cloudflare's perspective? And what do you see the future of that of generative AI overall when it comes to security defense at the perimeter? Okay. Well, look, I think um, first of all, uh, AI is a big topic. So generative AI is one sort of element of it. There's also traditional machine learning algorithms. And so Cloudflare is playing in a number of different categories under the umbrella of AI. So in terms of generative AI, the thing that everybody's talking about lately is, is sort of the large language models, the, the underpinnings of things like ChatGPT or Google Bard or a number of other services on the text-based side, but then there's also image-based uh, generative AI as well. On the text-based side, um, every company is talking about it and, and they're talking about how they can leverage it to make their employees more efficient, how they can upskill maybe their workers. For example, if you're a cybersecurity engineer and you're new, how do you get to be productive as quickly as possible? Well, perhaps you could ask questions of a, a generative AI uh, model that was trained on all of your uh, internal documentation, all your knowledge base, all of your uh, data sets that you have internally, and it it upskills that employee, you know, very quickly because they're no longer having to lean over to the next person at the next desk and ask questions. They can just ask those questions, and and it can help guide them. Same thing for customers. You know, when a customer comes to your website, sometimes they just want an answer to a problem, and you know, we oftentimes drive them to a knowledge base of some sort. But that's just a search engine, right? A search engine. You have to know what keywords to ask. You know, you have to understand sort of the context of what you're asking sometimes to be able to get to, to the answer that you're looking for. And a large language model on top of a, of a knowledge base could be immensely helpful in terms of you know, customer service and troubleshooting and that kind of stuff. So I see a couple of areas there where it's really interesting. Um, we, we added uh, ChatGPT plugin on top of Cloudflare Radar, which is, which is our dashboard for internet outages and internet, uh, uh, you know, sort of hiccups around the world. So now you can go query that and see what's going on via the, the, the chat GPT plugin. Um, we think AI co-pilots are going to be really interesting in terms of coding. So for example, Cloudflare Edge Workers, our workers platform is, a, is an edge computing platform. So we think um, a co-pilot there is going to be a really interesting capability. So some of that's emerging already uh, in, in, um, in, inside of Cloudflare. And so that's the, the generative side. And then the machine learning side, we use that quite effectively in terms of uh, helping score for bots and look for uh, phishing emails and our phishing email filters and do all kinds of things that would be very difficult to try to create an algorithm for. But machine learning can, can you know, find that needle in the haystack uh, very, very quickly. I get how machine, <clears throat> excuse me, I get how machine learning can help with phishing and other security threats. How does it work with it from a DDoS perspective? Like how do you use machine learning and that and that lar- and large language models to be fair, right? How do you use the how do you use AI specifically for DDoS and network packet-based attacks 
and in that I don't think we're using large language models per se for that. I mean, I think we're really using uh, uh, scoring of of sort of data flows, like you mentioned, and, and specifically, um, you know, trying to score what what's a bot and what's not a bot. A lot of attacks nowadays come in the form of botnets and. You know, it's not always just a volumetric network-based attack. Sometimes it's up at layer seven. Sometimes it's mimicking what a what a human would do on your website and trying to, um, you know, sort of either uh, overwhelm you with traffic. We saw one of the largest DDoS attacks in history recently, and it was a layer seven SSL level attack. I mean, it was right up there at, uh, at uh, you know, layer seven. And so basically that was trying to uh, mimic what what um, users would would do, and so if we can quickly figure out and and sort what's a real user, what's a you know fraudulent user, and we can sort of put in place uh, blocks and limitations and rate limiting against the fake users, we can certainly um, help keep those sites up and running and alive. Um, on I'm trying to even think in the back of my head how a, an LLM would would play there, but. You know, where, where I do see security around LLM is around helping companies protect themselves against leaking data, because a 